Hello, welcome to my podcast, The Rise and Fall of the Qing Dynasty, Cup of Solid Gold, and this is episode 16, Peace. An unknown Chinese writer during the mid-19th century wrote the following during that period of time. Quote, The Taiping and Nian rebels seemed to Peking like a mortal disease within the body. Russia, with its nibbling away at Qing territory, was a threat to the bosom. While England with its violent demands for trade, was only an affliction of the limbs. End quote. Last episode, I talked about the Taiping Rebellion and left it about the time the Second Opium War was ending. And remember, our Emperor Xianfeng is still ruling China. I now want to pick up the story It is now 1860. By this time, the Taipings were beginning to be seen by the Western nations as a threat to foreign trade. Remember, in the beginning, the Western nations had a different approach toward the Taipings. They left them alone. They treated them as an autonomous unit of government. But that was now changing the English were starting to lean toward the Qing dynasty. The English could easily, now that their trade and other issues with the Manchus were resolved, beginning to see the Taiping's anti-opium and religious issues as a threat. The English believed the Taiping's religious position was blasphemous. And about this same time, the Emperor Xianfeng died. The date of his death was August 22, 1861, and he was only 30 years old. It is written that he died of either tuberculosis or overindulgence or both. He passed away not in Peking, but in the town of Chengde. Before he died, he named his five-year-old son to succeed him and named or appointed eight advisors to look after the kingdom until the boy was old enough to rule on his own. Xianfeng is buried in the Qing tombs east of Peking. Unfortunately, Xianfeng's legacy continued a disturbing trend of ineffective Manchu emperors. For me, anyways, it is difficult to find any bright moments during his reign. 
he's most famous for, his humiliating abandonment of Peking during the advance of the Allies during the Second Opium War and the capture of Peking. Xian Feng could not imagine the European powers would ever attack and take Peking. Ashamed of fleeing Peking, he never went back and died shortly after. He led a life of overindulgence of alcohol, opium, and women. Similar to his father, he never understood the European mindset and refused to meet with them as he thought the Europeans and all Westerners were inferior. Interestingly, before he died, he sadly acknowledged the decline of the once great Manchu army. Before I go any further into this chronology, this history, I want to introduce everyone to one of the most influential, well-known, and powerful individual in all of Qing Dynasty history, indeed, maybe of all Chinese history. And she happens to be a woman. Her role for the next 50 or so years was pivotal and large. In the West, she was referred to as the Empress Dowager. In China, they referred to her as Sishi Taihou, or simply as Sishi. Her given name was Yahe Nala Xingjian, and she was born November 29, 1835 from a fairly ordinary Manchu family. There is the fascinating story that when she was 15 years of age, she and dozens of other women were brought before the Emperor Xianfeng for consideration of a concubine. Xianfeng at that time had just ascended to the throne and was only 19 years of age himself. Sishi conceived a son from Xianfeng in 1856. It was his only son. One of the things that made her stand out to the emperor was that she could read and write fluently, which was an unusual ability for a concubine. And her influence on the governance of China would begin as soon as her lover, the former Emperor Xianfeng died. The plan was, after the death of Xianfeng, that the eight advisors that he had appointed would accompany his body back to Peking for the formal funeral ceremony. Sishi and the other Empress Dowager, Xiaozheng, who was the deceased Emperor's Empress, would travel ahead of the eight advisors to Peking. These two together, along with the deceased emperor's younger half-brother, Prince Gung, who happened to marry Sishi's sister, plotted their coup. 
Remember, the eight advisors were not appointed as regents in the same sense as we've seen other regents during the Qing dynasty, such as Duarguan and Albai. Instead, the deceased emperor had designated these eight to merely advise and assist the young emperor. The real power lied with the two dowager empresses, and this was truly a unique situation in China. The eight advisors lacked any real power. All official actions needed to go through the two ladies. Because Sisha had Xianfeng's child, she had the senior status over the other empress dowager. And these two would rule China from behind the screen, so to speak. The eight advisors, upon learning of this arrangement, complained. This was an unprecedented plan. No woman had ever ruled during the Qing dynasty. But back in Peking, the two empresses, along with Prince Gung, drafted an edict charging the eight advisors with destroying imperial authority, deceit, and bad advice. They were arrested once they arrived in Peking. They were tried, one was executed, and the others banished. From this point, if you visited the Qing emperor, you would encounter a small boy on the imperial throne, surrounded by various court officials, and behind him would be a yellow translucent screen behind the throne. These two women would hear everything and give advice back. The five-year-old son of Xianfeng was named Zaichun. He was born April 27, 1856, in Beijing. His mother, of course, was the Empress Dowager Cixi. He ascended the throne on November 11, 1861. I will refer to him by his more common known name and his official name, the Emperor Tongzhi. He would only rule China for 13 years. He would die at a young age of 18. Tongzhi's rule would be pretty much done by the empresses and his uncle Gong. Despite early optimism about his reign, it can only be classified as a nothing. The Chinese had not had a young child emperor since Kangxi. And so they were naturally excited, thinking that perhaps this new emperor would be the new Kangxi and steer this dynasty in a different direction. And who could blame the Chinese for thinking and wishing so? Unfortunately, it was not to be. All that can be said by the young emperor's early years was that he was obstinate and dissolute. 
Meanwhile, the Taiping and the Nian rebellions were still ongoing. Early into the new emperor's reign, the Manchu army began to press hard at the Taipings from the west. The Taipings had nowhere to go but east toward the seaports. And in early 1862, they attacked Shanghai. Remember, the Western powers had an understanding with the Taipings that they were to leave the seaports unmolested. For a while now, and progressively as time went by, the foreign allies were beginning to lean in the Qing dynasty's direction. Both English and French forces intervened militarily. The intervention also included providing military advice and training to the Manchus and weaponry. The biggest contribution made to the Qing dynasty were the military arms, as they not only helped defeat the Taipings and the, and the Neons, but also helped spark China's modernization of its armies, its military, and its weaponry. In time, the Taiping leadership would implode and unravel. Its leader, the Taiping's leader, Hong Shuquan, would drink poison and commit suicide. Its other leaders were captured and executed. And so ended the Chinese Civil War, the Taiping Rebellion. I want to take some time to reflect on these rebellions, and I'm talking about the Taiping and the Neon Rebellions, but mostly the Taiping particularly what it meant and taught to the Qing dynasty, China, and the rest of the world. The enormous thing that stands out from these rebellions and the foreign domination at that time is that the Qing dynasty did not fall. This seems to me a testament to either the Manchu Resiliency, or a testament to the difficulties any nation or group of nations or rebels or groups of rebels would have in achieving a takeover of a country the size and diversity of China. Reflecting back today on these rebellions, it is clear that the leadership, the population pressure, the need for arable land, and famine drove this narrative, this history forward. The Taiping Rebellion was initially successful because they addressed this. They addressed these crises of the times, and they offered an alternative governing body, a governing option, concrete and clear measures for resolving it. Their vision of a new social order was a legitimate counter to the imperial age. Indeed, today's communist China can trace their roots and origins back to the Taipings. At the heart of the rebellions were the rottenness of the imperial system, the rage of the acquisition of Hong Kong by foreigners, the floods and the famines and the other great natural calamities. 
the casualties from these rebellions. I've seen ranges anywhere from 20 to 30 million, but it could possibly be more. At this same time, contemporaneously, as these rebellions were for a part of these rebellions, the American Civil War was raging. And comparing the American Civil War to these rebellions, the American Civil War seems like a brush fire. In the end, a Chinese contemporary summed up the Taiping uprising as nothing more than a 14-year struggle, wasted enthusiasm, and feudal courage. Immediately from here, the Qing dynasty will seek to restore its dynasty and hopefully change their path for the better. In the next episode, I begin to talk about the Qing's restoration efforts and the Tongzhi emperor will die without leaving an heir. Yes, yes, where have we encountered that before? Thank you. It has been a pleasure. Thank you.